0: we turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Continuing our treatment of the life of Moses, we take up verses 10 through 15. We won't reread them, but they will constitute our text for the sermon this evening. We read from Exodus chapter 2, and there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife, a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him, that he was a god, goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him, and said, This is one Of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it and the child grew and she brought him unto pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she called his name Moses and she said because i drew him out of the water and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an egyptian smiting an hebrew one of his brethren and he looked this way and that way And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedst the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reuel, Reuel their father, he said, "How is it that ye are come so soon today?" And they said, "An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock." And he said unto his daughters, "Where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter and she bare him a son and he called his name Gershom for he said I have been a stranger in a strange land and it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. There are also two other passages we're going to be making reference to, so I'll read them at this point. We have two New Testament commentaries on this passage. One is found in Acts 7, in the words of Stephen, prior to his being stoned to death. We have in Acts 7, verses 22 to 29. Acts 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him, and avenged him that was oppressed, and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strode, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Then we have another passage in Hebrews 11. Familiar? The account of Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 27. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God Than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God was preparing Israel for deliverance. At the same time, he was busy preparing Moses to be the deliverer. Now Moses' early years, as we noted last time, were spent in the home of his father and mother. After that time, Moses was taken to the palace where he was raised in the palace of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's daughter. He received the best training and education that Egypt had to offer. God was teaching Moses what was pleasing to him. And Moses needed to learn to set aside his own ideas, set aside his own ideals, and to lean on God. Now when it came to years, Moses faced the necessity of having to make a choice. What direction would his life go? What would be pleasing to God? That was what Moses needed to learn. And that's what we also need to learn. What is pleasing to God? We're at times inclined to think that we know what would be pleasing. And that we believe that what we have planned is that which God ought to be pleased with. Moses thought the same in this history. While Moses made a choice honorable to God in forsaking Egypt, Moses now believed that it was time for him to bring about the deliverance of Israel. But God would have to teach him over the next 40 years what was necessary to know in order to prepare him for the work that God wanted him to do. Moses thought he was ready, but he wasn't. Sometimes God's preparation Of us also takes a very different path than that which we would desire now we know that God has foreordained the whole path of our lives at the same time as believers God puts us at times before crossroads in our lives and we're required to make a decision with regard to the direction of our lives especially that is relevant for young people as young people graduate as they move out of their houses They face now the reality. How are they going to direct their lives? As they reach years of maturity, decisions need to be made. And as they make decisions, there are choices that are inevitable. And where will those choices lead? We learn from this passage that those choices are necessary. What those choices are and the decisions required as well as the need for patient trust in God. Now this passage is a passage then that sets before us the reality of how will we please God. We look to God for that direction. And we take as our theme, faith in conflict, noting first of all the choice here, secondly the conflict that is set before Moses, and then finally the lesson. We read, and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren. Verse 11. Now Moses faced here an antithetical choice, one that all of us face every day in our lives. When we talk about that which is antithetical, we're talking about the fact that God sets before us that which is the antithesis. And the antithesis requires of us to say yes to the things of God, to say no to the things of sin. The truth of the antithesis is found all through scripture, and it led to the establishment of our own churches back in 1924. The antithesis teaches that there is a separation between the church and the world. The church and the world are not, in the midst of this world, in common. Though from an earthly perspective, they have everything in common, spiritually they have nothing in common. And so there are two distinct ways the Bible teaches, the ways of God and the ways of the world, which are characterized as the ways of sin, the ways of the devil. The way of the devil and the way of God can't be reconciled one with another. It's not a both and, it's an either or. And as we live in the midst of this world, increasingly we're to understand that sharp antithesis. There are times when we try to have both. We want to have both what God is setting forth and we want what the world is teaching. And so we try to put our feet in both, especially as young people at times. We see the lure and the appeal of the world, and so we want that, but we also know that we don't want to discourage our parents, and we want also the things that have been taught us with regard to God. And so we're torn. In that regard, Jesus addressed this again and again throughout his ministry, admonishing not to pursue the way of mammon, instead to say no to mammon, to say yes to the things of God's kingdom. Now to go back to the history of our churches, prior to the start of our churches, there was a blurring of that antithesis in our mother denomination. There was an emphasis even on the benefit that the world had to offer. Even the value of pursuing worldly things and enjoying worldly things. And that was all under the guise of a false teaching. The false teaching was that God has a common grace toward all men. And that God then shows that grace toward all the people in the world. It's given to all men. And because of that, the world now has something in common with us. We both share the grace of God. And because of that, then, we can benefit from the world. We can study the things of the world, not just to know how to counter them and what not to do, but we also can study them in order to benefit from them. There are things, then, that the world has to offer that are of benefit to the believer because we share in God's goodness and God's grace. Now we understand the importance of learning the ways of the world learning even the ways of the wicked, so that we can understand them and be better able to counter their false teaching and their false doctrine. But we don't look to the world to learn the way that we ought go. And therefore, our churches then, standing over against that error of common grace, insisted God's grace is particular God's grace is only toward his children. And while God's providence is such that he directs the course of all that takes place in the world, including the wicked, nevertheless, God's children and the wicked do not have anything in common from a spiritual perspective. And as a matter of fact, the calling that God gives in Deuteronomy 33, verse 28, and elsewhere, is that his Israel, his church, would dwell in safety alone. That is isolation would be her strength. As she kept herself from the temptations and the influences of the wicked world about her. Now that isolation would not be physical. That's impossible. We're in this world. But God's people are a people separated by God A God who established enmity between the people of God and the world. He did that after the fall. So that there's a war going on. And that war is a fierce war. It's a war between the truth and falsehood. It's a war between what's right and what's wrong. Between heaven and hell. And as that war rages through the years, God admonishes, He calls His children, be ye separate, come out from among them. Don't be living, don't be giving yourselves over to the pursuit of the things that the world lives for. They're living for self. They're living for pleasure. You are called to live unto God and to show forth His praise. We, as the redeemed children of God, do not belong to the world. We may not live then in a worldly manner as the prince of this world would have us to live. We're a peculiar people called out in order to show forth the praise of Jehovah God. These are the basic truths of the life of God's children And these truths have a directive force so that they determine the path down which God's children are to walk, the manner in which God's children are to live. As God's children, called out of darkness, set aside unto God in his glory, the path is that which is to the praise and to the honor of Jehovah God. The fact of the matter then is that the wicked and those who are the redeemed children of God have nothing in common spiritually. While physically, earthly, we have much in common, spiritually, we don't. And therefore, we ought not live the same way. If we just use nature, a dog cannot live the same life that a chicken lives. A dog is going to live a very different life from a chicken. A peacock is going to live a very different life from a pig. And so is the Christian going to live a very different life from the non-Christian, the worldly one? They're not the same. One is dead in trespasses and sins. The other is alive in Jesus Christ. The world is seeking after the lusts of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the vain glory of life. The theory of the world is eat, drink, live it up. Be happy, for tomorrow we might perish. Whereas God's children are dedicated to the glorious purpose of living unto God, showing forth His praise, manifesting His glory in everything that they do, living in a manner that's holy, unblameable, before the sight of the living God who's called them out of darkness into light. And they're motivated to do that out of thankfulness to God. Jehovah God has done great things for us and out of that joy and out of that thankfulness our life is directed differently than the ways of the unregenerate now the separation then is a spiritual separation it demands of us conviction it requires of us that we reject the ways of sin that we seek first the things of God's kingdom you know the struggle and I know the battle that this involves. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. We're very familiar with that passage. The life of the Christian is difficult because of the fact that this new life now is in conflict with our sinful nature. As a result, there are admonitions and callings. Now, there are some Reformed believers that want nothing to do with choices. They hear a sermon like I've begun, and immediately they conclude that cannot be a reformed sermon. A sermon that speaks of choices cannot be theocentric, God-centric. It cannot be Christocentric, Christ-centric. Rather, talk like that is Arminian. It's free will. Now, beloved, we all understand the Bible is theocentric. It's God-centered. We understand that Christ is the theme that runs through the whole of the Scriptures so that God's word is Christocentric. Christ is at the central. And as the Bible then is God's word concerning Jesus Christ and the wonder of his work in the heart and lives of his children, the Bible is not embarrassed to talk about choices. Choices that characterize believers. God's people come to crossroads in their life. And as they do so, they need to make decisions. And God sets forth the way that we ought to go. Say no to the ways of sin. Say yes to the ways of God. And God not only performs a wondrous work for us, He's at work in us, directing us by His Spirit and guiding us. The believer then, in prayer, looks to God. Cries out in the midst of his need. He desires to know the way that he ought go and trusts that God will make known that way and God will give courage and strength to live it and to walk it. To reject the idea of the believer facing choices and decisions is not reformed. It's not biblical. It's hyper-Calvinistic. The passage before us here and the interpretation of it in Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, clearly speak of Moses facing options and making choices. At issue is not whether or not we as believers will need to choose. We will, but at issue is this, what will you choose? Which pathway are you going to take? As those who are God's children, the options are the same as that which Moses faced. The way of the world the way of God and His will. And so God demands of us that we look to Him, that we lay hold on His glory and that we pursue His will in everything that we take up. And we look to God for strength to do that which is right, knowing our own sinfulness and weakness. Now we can say as well that the wonder of God's grace is such that His children turn their backs on the way of sin. That His children, even As children and young people are able to stand for what is right and to pursue the will of their Heavenly Father despite the odds that may be against them. And the Bible is replete with examples. Joseph, Moses here in Hebrews 11 gives us a whole list of those who by faith stood firm and did what was right and pleasing in God's eyes. The elect child of God will not continue unrepentantly in sin because God will turn and God will bring that one to repentance and true sorrow for sin. God will do, with, do so with some at the end of their life like he did with the thief on the cross. An elect child of God his whole life, but finally regenerated at the end of his life, and brought to the conscious wonder of his salvation. Others, God performs that wonder in infancy. But still, the child of God, even living in the midst of this life, will make bad decisions. And for that reason, the admonitions are necessary. The warnings are needed. Parents are required. Elders are needed within the church so that God makes use of the various means in order to direct us in the way that we ought go. And never, when we make bad decisions and find ourselves on the path of sin, may we ever blame God as though God is the one who is responsible for leading and guiding us in that way. We are guilty and we confess that sin and we cry out to God's mercy. Similarly, as we live in the midst of this world, we understand we're never going to be perfect in the sense of being sinless. Our lives are always going to reflect the reality of our sinful natures. But God works a sensitivity to sin. He works a sensitivity that increases. He works in us a desire for the glory that is his. And we see that work of God in the life of Moses. And we pray for that work of God in our lives. God gave Moses an outstanding education. One that was the best that his day had to offer. An education within his own home, as well as an education within the courts of Pharaoh. Within his own covenant home, as we noted last time, Moses learned about God. He learned the way of righteousness. He learned the wonder of the Redeemer. Moses learned the suffering of the people of God. The reproach of Christ, as it's referenced in Hebrews 11. He learned from his parents, we would say, a world and life view that taught who he was, who God was, and what his relationship to this world was. That God is the creator of heaven and earth. That God is the holy and righteous one. That man sinned and fell short of the glory and honor of God. That God restores man only through the wonder of a mediator, the promised Messiah, who came in order to work the wonder and of grace in the hearts of his children to establish a spiritual kingdom. And Moses was directed by his parents to see his life then as a pilgrimage. His goal, not the things here below, but the heavenly hope. That was referenced and reflected in Canaan. That he would go back to Canaan. And that Canaan would be that picture of that heavenly hope. At the same time then, he also received an education in the courts of Pharaoh. And there he learned all about the wisdom of the world, leadership, battle, learning about astrology, the way of the pyramids, the way of the Egyptian gods. He learned, in some respects, an education that was entirely antithetical, entirely opposite from that which his parents taught him in their home. What happened when he came to years? We read here that Moses, when he was grown, went out to his brethren and looked on their burdens. Hebrews 11 verse 25 puts it this way, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What a wonder. Will you, will I, Choose the pleasures of sin or life with God's children. This becomes increasingly an issue for us in the midst of this world. The pursuit of God and the pursuit of God's kingdom results in persecution. It results in affliction. And more and more that's going to be evident as the end gets closer. Church membership is important. Moses chose to be a member of the flock of God, the Israelites. And by casting his lot in with the Israelites, he then became hated and the object of the wrath then of the world. Who will you stand with? Who will I stand with? Will we stand with the world or with the people of God? Will we stand as a friend of God or a friend of the devil? Will we pursue the things of God's kingdom Or the things of the world? Or do we want both? Now this act of Moses was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Moses was still sinful. Moses still did foolish things, as we're going to know in just a few moments. Moses was a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus was faced with this temptation. The devil set before him all the wealth of the world, all the pleasures of the world. And the devil said, look, Here's the world. Here's everything that it has to offer. If you pick this, all you have to do is just bow down to me and this will all be yours. You children remember what the devil said. Get thee behind me, Satan. Instead of pursuing that which the devil set before him, the wealth, the fame, the honor, the glory of the world, Jesus said, I am going to suffer for the sake of the people of God. He chose the way of the cross. He chose the horror of God's wrath for you and for me. He forsook the treasures and the pleasures of this world so that He could die on the cross, so that He could suffer the pain of hell, and so that He could send His Spirit into your hearts in order to strengthen you to make that same choice, to live unto God. Now, this must have perplexed Pharaoh and his daughter. What man would turn from wealth? What man would turn from prosperity, from fame, from honor? What man would turn from all the pleasures that were set before him? Sometimes people even say that to us, do they not? Why would you join that church? Joining that church you're committing yourself to go two times a Sunday? Why would you do that? What would ever motivate you? People feel sorry for us. They can't understand. Why would you join yourself to the people of God? Why would you commit yourself to that that way? And there's only one answer. In Hebrews 11, it gives it faith, the power of faith. It's not of us. It's not our doing. It's the marvelous wonder by which Jehovah God has taken us and united us to himself by a true and living faith. And faith was the power in Moses that moved him to do as he did. and faith is the power that binds us to God and causes us to live unto him. Now Moses, having made that good choice, now faces conflict immediately. And he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew one of his brethren, we read in verse 11. Moses had made the right decision to glorify God, to live with the people of God. And now he's put face to face with the conflict that currently is taking place in Egypt. And how does he respond? He responds on an impulse. There's no prayer. There's no waiting on God. There's no word from God that told him what he should do. Moses relies on his own strength on the wisdom of men. He thought that he could deliver the people of God now by his own arm of flesh. The education, we would say, to a degree got to his head. He now believed that he would be able to accomplish that which God would desire in and through him. He could defend the Israelites, and he would do so like the other kings defended their countries. He was conducting himself as though God would use him to deliver Israel by his own arm of strength. And his ability and his strength was his confidence. Acts 7 verse 25 states how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Now through the ages, the church of Jesus Christ has similarly pursued foolish activities. Believing that their doing it for the glory of God. Think of Peter taking up his sword in order to defend his Savior. This is a spiritual battle, Jesus had to say. It's not a physical battle. Moses kills the Egyptian. That's not the way in which this battle is to be taken up. Think of the Crusades, a sad chapter in the history of the world. Crusades that involved men and women and children taking up arms, going to battle against enemies, thinking that they could accomplish spiritual deliverances and victories through their might, through their strength, with the arm of the flesh. Kings, knights, children putting on physical armor made with iron and steel, taking up their swords and their bows on behalf of God and on behalf of His glory. To fight against their enemies in a physical manner. They didn't understand the wondrous nature of God's spiritual deliverance. And today, similarly, that becomes the focus of many. This world, life in this world. How can Christians establish a kingdom that's earthly? Now what did Moses intend to accomplish here? Moses intended really to accomplish two things. First of all, that the people of Israel would see that even though he was raised in Egypt, the lawful son of Pharaoh's daughter, nevertheless he was rejecting Egypt. He wanted nothing to do with Egypt any longer. And secondly, he wanted the Hebrews to see that Moses, trained and educated as he was, was qualified to be their leader. He was the one who could deliver Israel. In a sense, Moses is saying, here I am, in the prime of my life, 40 years old. Look at the education I've received. I'm ready now to send a message to Israel. I'm on your side, and I am your man. And I now will bring you out of the land of Egypt. Moses thinks that the people for whom he was willing to sacrifice so much would be willing and eager to be delivered by him. And what ends up happening? His own people bring reproach upon him. Now Moses expected the reproach of Pharaoh. He expected the reproach of Egypt. But not from his own people. How humbling! Moses' timing was different than God's timing. Moses' manner was different from that which God had ordained. There's but one weapon that the church looks to in the midst of her battle against this wicked world. The blood of the Lamb. God had to teach Moses, Moses, put your hands and swords away. Your deliverance is not by the might of man. Your deliverance is through the blood of the Lamb. That blood later would be spread on the door posts of the Israelite homes. And it would result then in the angel of death passing over. This conflict was not one of physical might, physical power. It was a spiritual conflict. And deliverance would not be by the arm of the flesh, by the might of men, but by the precious blood of the Savior. This lesson Moses needed to learn. It's a lesson that we need to learn. The victory in the midst of this life is through the blood of the cross. It's through the wonder of forgiveness. It's a victory that directs us heavenward. And so Moses kills this Egyptian. When he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses had to learn that the power of the sword is not going to deliver. Israel he had to look to God how did God want him to conduct himself not what did he think and so God taught him that the next day when the Israelites reveal themselves fighting Moses then confronts them and now what is their response who made thee a prince and a judge over us And so by faith, Moses flees Egypt. Now what discouragement. We're trying to do what's right. We think we're walking in a manner that's obediently. And yet, God then shuts that door. God brings troubles in our life. Think of the ways in which saints, through the scriptures, experienced deep discouragement. Elijah. Elijah finds himself alone. He doesn't know how to proceed he's consumed with self-pity and god has to come and say no elijah you're not alone this is my work think of peter he denied his lord three times and he wept bitterly he's discouraged he realizes he's a failure god has to pick him up and say no peter this isn't your work this is my work i'm the one who will accomplish my will according to my good pleasure Moses was not ready. Israel was not ready. Now Moses flees. He didn't just take a break from Egypt for a time. He abandons Egypt. And he wants nothing to do now with Egypt anymore. And in part it's of necessity because of the fact that Pharaoh now is seeking his life. When Pharaoh heard this thing, verse 15, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses leaves alone. How difficult it is for us to take a stand against sin. How much more difficult to do it alone. But God gives us hope, and God gives us hope in the midst of our struggles and difficulties. But God requires of us at times that we need to go alone. Our family may be pulling us back. Making excuses maybe why it's okay to just compromise a little bit. It's okay to enjoy the pleasures of sin along with spiritual things. The Hebrews were fully aware of the horrors of Egypt. But they still want to stay because they love Egypt in their hearts. And so here's Moses finally coming to the point where he knows that there's an antithetical choice that must be made here. He seeks to do it, and he finds himself not supported. He finds himself alone. We know, beloved, how difficult and how challenging that is, but by faith we flee the Egypt in our life. We flee it, even if necessary, alone. And God gives hope also in the face of all the challenges and all the trials of life. And God gives us courage to press on and to know that encouragement. There are times when we want to fit in, there are times when everybody else is doing it. So we just want to join with them. And then we have to remind ourselves I don't need the entertainment of Hollywood. I don't need alcohol to have fun and to have a good time. I don't need to dress like the world dresses in their immodest ways in order to have joy and happiness. I seek the things of God, His glory and His kingdom. And I trust that Jehovah God will guide and will lead me. But Moses while he's seeking to do that which is right, is yet not leaning on God. And so often in our lives, similarly, we know what we ought to do, but then our motivation isn't what it ought be. Perhaps we're not leaning on the cross. We're not looking to Christ as we ought. A lesson was necessary for Moses to learn. And that lesson was to look to God, to pray, to think of God. So that we read here in verse 15 at the end, He dwelt in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now we realize more is going to happen in this time period and in this history. But God gives Moses time for contemplation, time to think. To think about who he is. To think about what is it that God is calling him. Echoing through his mind is this point. Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Moses had no directive from God directly. God had not called him specifically. He had not prayed to God necessarily about the timing of it. So that now he must submit to God's call and God's time. Moses had to look by faith to God and he had to learn to wait upon the Lord. To know that Jehovah God is the one who directs our lives. His timing is that which is necessary. But far more importantly, not to lean on his own arm of strength. Not to trust in his own ability to grow in meekness and humble dependence upon Jehovah. And so it is for us. We have to learn. I can't trust my arm of flesh. And so God, at times, leads us in temptation and we give ourselves to sin and we get burned. We learn how weak we are. We learn that we can't lean on our own arm of strength. We realize that the pain and the suffering that comes with that are more than we can bear. And while God forgives us, we learn to live yet our whole life with the scars that result. But scars that are necessary in order to guide us as they were necessary now for Moses. Moses had to turn away from the philosophy of Egypt. He had to turn away from Pharaoh. He had to turn away from the strength of armies and the physical force of men. He had to look to the Son of Man alone. And that was only possible by faith. God united him to himself by a true and living faith. And the power of faith turns us away from self to God. The power of faith causes our life, our confession, and our walk to harmonize to the glory and honor of God. Some claim they're willing to forsake the world But their actions and their life betrays them. Some join themselves to the church, but then when hardships and trials come, their faith is put to the test and they fall away. But the one who bears reproach and endures is the one living by faith. Such is the work of grace in Moses' life. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We read in Hebrews 11 verse 25. Moses persisted in his convictions by God's grace. That which controlled him was not fear, but faith. And Moses faces now hardship after hardship as he goes forward. His life becomes riddled with trials. But through it all, that which characterizes his life is not fear, but purpose. He endures, according to Hebrews 11, with his eye of faith fastened on God. And endurance is that spiritual strength and power that we call perseverance. It's the strength to continue down a certain path without wavering, without quitting, without falling away from that path. When that way is difficult, we endure with our eyes on Christ who called us and who will strengthen us, even when necessary to go alone. And important it is in that regard that we as parents don't require that of our children. How easy it is for us We encourage the entertainment of Hollywood. And then our children are put in a dilemma. Will they put their foot in both or will they forsake it? We encourage alcohol as the way to have fun in family gatherings. And now our children are in a bind. What will they do? How will they find joy and happiness as they go forward? Even more difficult when they feel the pressure before God to forsake it, but their parents are not consistently walking in the ways of Jehovah. But by faith, Moses turns his back on Egypt. And we learn to lean on God, to trust in God, and to look to Christ in our lives, even when alone. All our friends are pursuing the ways of sin. Our friends are pursuing the ways of the world. But we know what we need to do. And we're willing then to take the reproach of friends. We expect Satan. We expect the world. But our friends? But Sometimes, even as Moses, such is the experience that we endure. But we look to the one who is invisible. That's striking. Out of verse 27 in Hebrews 11. And it's marvelous. How can we look to someone who's invisible? If someone's invisible, even your children know. We can't see them. How is it that we look to God? We see God in his promises. We see God in his word. We see God in Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sin and was raised again for our justification. And that vision of God in his word, in his promises, and in Jesus Christ upholds us in a number of ways. First of all, it raises us above the fear of men and it directs us to this wonder, God is on my side. It works patience, it works contentment in the midst of our trials, assuring me, my light affliction, it's but for a moment. And it's working a far more exceeding glory. It inspires our soul with energy and with perseverance as we see what Christ did for us. He gave himself. He followed that path, even though it cost him his own life. It inspires us. And it changes the whole of our perspective on life. We live unto him and we show forth his praise. Moses had a glimpse of that invisible God in Jesus Christ. And he endured by faith in his calling. How much more, beloved, we have been given the gift of the Spirit who lay hold upon Jesus Christ and we know his power. We know the victory that he accomplished on our behalf. And we know his greatness and his revelation to us. And we press on by faith. Moses had to learn not to let his flesh stand in the way of faith. He was confident in his flesh when he killed that Egyptian. But God taught him, it's not going to be a 40-year-old man that's going to deliver my people. It needs to be an 80-year-old man. God had schooled Moses in the schools of Egypt through the prime of his life. But God says, your instruction, Moses, is not over. You need to be a shepherd now for 40 years. My servant will be one who goes forward by faith, not by the arm of flesh. And when God is ready, and when he calls Moses, what happens? Moses does not feel qualified. Moses understands now who he is. Moses understands his weaknesses. He knows he's unqualified. He's unfit for the job. But now God says, Moses, you're ready. Your confidence is not in yourself. It's not in your arm of flesh. I will give you words to speak. I will perform the wonders. And I will bring about the deliverance of the people. The glory is mine and the strength will be from me. Beloved, are you enduring? Am I enduring? Enduring in our relationships, and our trials? Are we looking to the flesh? Are we looking by faith to God and to his strength? Are we forsaking Egypt in our lives? Turning our back on the ways of the world? Are we willing to take on the affliction, the struggles necessary? Beloved, we look to God and we look to Jesus Christ and His forgiving grace and we cling to His mercy. We cling to His everlasting love and fellowship by which He forgives us. He strengthens us and we believe that He is able to do far abundantly above anything that I can think or do. His will is beyond my will. And he's the one delivering his children out of the bondage of Egypt in order to bring them to the glory of Canaan. This is his work. And we look to Christ and to the wonder of his spirit to strengthen us going forward by faith. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of grace in our lives. Strengthen us to say no to the ways of sin, to turn our backs on the ways of the world, to pursue that way which is the seeking of the things of thy kingdom, and grant us to do so, not leaning on our arm of flesh, but looking to Christ who alone is our deliverer, and the power of his Spirit to uphold us and to strengthen us, that all glory might be directed unto thee, the God of our salvation. Amen.